as I think about what's going on in our city and in our church and, and things like that, I'm, I'm super encouraged uh, by so many things that are, that are taking place. I'm encouraged by the people that have come out to Outward Church that are uh, rediscovering their faith or um, they're, 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 they're kind of awakened to a reality um, that they've never been awakened to. Um, you know, we see this a lot in college students as they go, as they, they go away for the first time and then um, from, from mom and dad's house, like if they're, if they're Christian people, and, and now they're in the process of making their faith their own. They're in the process of, of really, in some sense of the word, becoming true Christians. They're, they're, their faith has been their, their parents' faith for so many, so many years, and now, it's, and now it's becoming their own. And so that's, that's encouraging. And then we see people who are, you know, early on in life, as they're, uh, as they're, they're, they're getting together a, a, a family, and maybe they're coming back to the faith, or maybe they're just discovering the faith for the first time. And so they're kind of intaking, like, what does it mean uh, to be uh, a Christian? What does it mean to be somebody who's, who's walking with Jesus? What does it mean to be somebody who has morals and who's, who is, uh, you know, doing this Christianity thing? Um, and th- there's just all types of people. I couldn't possibly mention all of you. Uh, this morning, but um, there's just so many different types of people, and what I, what I want to get at this morning is that uh, so many times um, we are led to believe that Christianity is is one way, and those of us who really even believe that we know the gospel, now the gospel is the core truth of the Bible, and if you don't get the gospel, then you don't get Christianity. Christianity isn't morals. It's not about being a good person. It's about Jesus being the only good person who died for us and living out of that reality. But too many times, those of us who, who even think that we know the gospel, like we still are not quite there yet. We're not quite there yet, and I, I'm not going to say that I don't think that you're a Christian or that you're not saved or something along those lines, but I don't believe that sometimes uh, that we're really getting at the reality of what God wants in our church. And I, as, I, as I struggled with this passage over this last week, I think the thing that I kept kind of tripping over, over and over again in Daniel was just like, how does this apply to us? How does it apply to us? What, is it, what does it mean? Because in some ways it's prophetic. It talks about future things. And so many Christian people get so hung up on the prophetic stuff in Daniel that they, they try to figure all this stuff out. But really there's, there's another reality that's going on here that I think will speak to this. And that is that are we Christian people who are, who are we, we really have a desire to live for God but never quite execute on that desire. Never quite execute on that desire. So really what, what takes place is that we know that we need something from God. We, we have this sense in us that we need, uh, maybe it's just religion, but, but in some sense we, we, we believe that there's a creator, we believe that there's, there's something there that we need, and yet it never quite tangibly uh, makes a change in our lives. And I think the reason is this, is that we just never quite let go of that worldly point of view that we have. We never quite let go of that worldly point of view that we have, and it's constantly influencing us. It's constantly changing us. 
Like We've talked about this numerous times recently, but I believe that this is the core reality of what's going on at Outward Church. In our church in Salem, is, is that we're still like under this power that is in this world, that is of this world, and, and there's, there isn't tangible results. There isn't tangible change. And so our lives look the same in some ways with perhaps less drinking, uh, less sex out, out of wedlock, less, you know, what have you. And so what, what happens is, is that our community isn't necessarily changed. Our, our, our lives aren't necessarily changed. Our church still kind of looks like the world. And so what is it going to ta- take to see us change? Well, it, it is going to take the Spirit of God moving on our hearts. Ultimately, it is up to God to do something in our city and, in, and through us. But what I really want to point out is this, is that too frequently we're still just in the same old, same old. We're still people who are simply after just an affinity group of, 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 of people to hang out with. We're after a little bit of spirituality. We're after a pick-me-up. We're after a God who will make our lives better and who will fulfill our dreams. And instead of seeing our world transformed, we're asking God to transform our finances or we're asking God to transform just an individual situation. And as soon as those things right themselves or something takes place, we're on to the next thing. And so there's no real tangible growth. And let me tell you what this does. Let me tell you what this does is that this tells our community, because our community is watching us, our community sees what's happening in our lives, and they say, I see no evidence of real power in your life. I see no evidence. Now, to be sure, we do have people in our church that are displaying this, so I I don't want to lump us all in on that. But I do want to say that the church in general, I think, just doesn't display this, doesn't display this. There, There doesn't seem to be a power source that is directing us, and, and, and so then people see us, and they, they hear us, and so what, what happens is that there's no credibility to our lives. There's no credibility like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had in their lives. There's no credibility to see real change happen, and so um, as we're reading this, what I want to draw your attention to is that all too frequently when we're looking at biblical stories of the Bible, we lump ourselves in with the wrong person. We lump ourselves in with Daniel and his buddies and we say, yeah, that's me. That's, that's who I am. But too, uh, too frequently, we do not identify with the worldly attitude that Daniel is pushing back against. We don't identify with this king and say, you know what, that in many ways is who I am. That's the way that I am. And so let me read the passage, and then we'll get to more of this. And so what's, what, let me briefly just quick intro here uh, or, or, or um, review, and that is that Daniel and his friends are high up in, um, in Israel. They are a part of the noble class, and so they've been taken captive to Babylon. And what's been happening is that Babylon has been trying to Babylonianize them, has been trying to say, okay, get rid of your religion, get rid of your original name, get rid of all of your practices, and we want you to become Babylonian. 
And so they're in exile, they're in this place, and Daniel and his friends say, we will not participate in that. They are in government. They are high up in government because of their skills and their abilities, and they are beginning to speak truth to power. They are beginning to exemplify this life that God has called them to in the midst of this, and they have been doing this. There's a history of it. And then we come to this part where Nebuchadnezzar the king has a dream. And the dream, uh, it has terrified him. It has really disturbed him. And so he tells all of his sorcerers and his magicians and all of these spiritual people, which Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are included in, and, and he goes to them and he says, I want you to tell me not just what the dream means, but I want you to tell me what the, the dream actually is. What did I dream? which sounds impossible, but Nebuchadnezzar is saying, if you can tell me what I dreamed, then I'll bet that your, that your assessment of that dream is actually true. And so that's what he begins, uh, that's, that's what happens. Well, uh, ultimately, uh, the, all of the spiritual people, except for Daniel and those guys, uh, say, there's no one that can do this except the gods and they're not with man. Daniel steps forward and says, uh, let me do it. He goes back to his friends. They pray for mercy. God answers their prayer, tells him the dream, tells him the interpretation. And here he is, and now he is about to stand in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to tell him the dream. And so that's where we're at in verse 31 of chapter 2 in Daniel, which says this. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image Mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer fleshing, uh, uh, threshing floors, not fleshing floors, that would be a different type of floor. And, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now I want to stop there for a second. Now what's, what's happening here? It's, there's this incredible image in front of Nebuchadnezzar. He sees this image. It's, it's dazzling. It's incredible in appearance. It's massive. It's, it's, uh, it, it is, it's incredible because it's got gold and silver and bronze and iron and all of this stuff. And what he's seeing here is it has feet of clay. And then what takes place is that this stone, not cut by human hands, comes out of nowhere and just dashes this thing to bits. Dashes this incredible statue to bits. And, and it's so much so that it's dust. It's nothing. Well, the thing that we're going to see almost immediate, or exactly immediately after this, at the beginning of chapter 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar, immediately after all of this takes place, goes out and he builds a statue. And we're not sure what the statue is of, but it seems like this statue is very similar to the stream that he has, which makes us think this, and that is that Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream 
for some time, and it is of his grandeur. We don't know if the statue is of him or not, but what Daniel is going to say here in just a second is that this is, in part, it's you. It's you. So there's this massive dream. There's this massive statue. And what's happening is that there is an incredible fear that's come over him as he begins to think about this. He's like, what does this mean? What does this mean? I don't know if you've, if you've had dreams like this, but the best way to, to kind of look at this is, is, is to look at this in a way that says, like, there is an anxiety-producing fear that's coming from something that Nebuchadnezzar has dreamt up. He's had this idea of, of building this statue for some time, but there's this anxiety and this fear of, of what's taking place. And, and what's happening is this, is that something is being destroyed, and I think it has to do with me. There's something that's going to be destroyed. Now, in, in many parts of the world, when we think about uh, life for many people, life is very difficult for people, but in the United States of America, the American dream is really about being your own king. It's being the, the person that's in charge of your own destiny. It's creating your own world. It's creating, uh, you know, it's, it's having a home and it's having a car and it's having the life. It's having all of these things. And these are anxiety producing as you get them. As you get these things, the fear begins to set in that what if I lose them? What if it goes away? This has happened numerous times in my own life. As I have become more successful, the fear of, of losing that success or losing the thing that I had gained begins to be overwhelming for me. The fear of that is it, it begins to kind of build and I begin to ha have anxiety. I begin to have sometimes sleepless nights. You know, last week... Uh, uh, Tim, one of our elders and also my literal brother, um, spoke on stress and about not being able to, uh, to sleep at night. I mean, that can be clinical, it can be uh, biological, it can be other things. But for me and for myself, what I experienced was this, is that I, as I gained, I began to have more pressure on my life. As I started a business in my uh, late teens, early 20s, which is which seemed like a pretty bad idea. Um, good idea at the time, bad idea now that I look back at it. The pressure of having to keep this thing going. What if I can't pay this next bill? What if I can't? What if I can't? What if I can't? When I, when I went out and, and a, a few of us went out and started a church, what happened was this, is that the stress and the anxiety began to build because of what took place was that I just began to worry that things would fall apart, that things would not be the way that I want them to be, that someone could come in and wreck everything. And it would, it would just be awful. And then my name would just be uh, smeared across this city. And people would think less of Matt. And then just recently, as I, as I um, took on this remodeling project of my home and, and really the project actually got a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. And as, as I got into this, the fear and the anxiety began to set in that what happens if I can't finish? 
What happens if this doesn't come together? What happens? What happens? The anxiety and the fear of what's taking place. Maybe you're in that place, or maybe you haven't gotten there yet. Maybe you're too young to have experienced some of that. But some of that anxiety and that fear comes from, like, um, I'm setting the course for my life as I'm going to school right now. And if I pick the wrong major, like, all hell's going to break loose. Like, it's over for me. What if I choose the wrong spouse? And, and, like, it's over for me. What if I lose the very thing I've been working all of my life for? It's over for me. These are anxiety-producing things. And do you know what happens? You know what happens as a result? Some of us will work ourselves to death. We'll work ourselves to death. I'm one of those people. I'll work myself to death. I mean, I mean like, I will work, and I will work, and, and what, I don't know why I'm tearing up right now. Um, um, people always make fun of me for this, and I try so hard not to. Um, but the, the deal is this, is that I, I just, I work harder, and I work harder, and I work harder. And so the thought comes to me is that I, um, like, literally, like, every single night of the week, like, the rains are coming, I'm, I'm almost done with, you know, getting some siding on my house, and I feel bad because my, uh, because I have children, you know, I mean, my, and my kids are, are like, they want to hang out with dad, and so, like, you know, it's Friday family fun night, and dad doesn't want to have fun because dad's thinking about the house. And so all I can think about is the anxiety that's producing the fear of what if my house gets wet? What if I, what if I get a leak in the house? What if, what, if, um, what if that doesn't work out? And, and what if I'm not done in time and then this financial thing takes place? And, and so what's happening is this, that the anxiety is producing results which are this. I can't play right now. I can't watch the movie tonight because I've got to work on the house, and I've got to get that done. But see, my problem is, is that I'll always be there. I'll always be there. I'm telling on myself right now, like, but I'll always be there. I'll always be in this place where if I don't do this, then this could happen. You know what that is? It's anxiety. It's produced by fear that leads me to neglect uh, my kids and other things that I should be doing. You know what? All of us do that. I have to do this. I can't be involved in what God has called me to do because I have to be doing this right now. I, I, have to, I have to do this because if I don't, then this will take place, and therefore, that's, that's it. Nebuchadnezzar's de- dealing with this, and he's not a believer. He's not a follower of Yahweh. What's happening with him is that he has anxiety, and out of that anxiety is coming this deep anger that causes him to threaten his, you know, spiritual people and everybody and say, I'm going to kill all y'all if you don't do what I say. It's coming from us saying, I've got to fulfill the American dream. I've got to keep up. I've got to have the right major. I've got to have the right spouse. I've got to keep things going. Otherwise, it all falls apart. It all falls apart. What's God's answer to this? That was the dream. Now let's go to the interpretation. Uh, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, 
to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Stop right there. I wasn't going to stop there. I'm going to stop there right now. Like You can't miss this. You can't. Because immediately you have to take, like, here's the anxieties of my life. Here's, here's the things that are happening to me. This is what's taking place. And, and I can't even function. Some of us work ourselves to death. Others of us, we just like, you want to crawl in a hole. We just want to sleep. We just want to be depressed. Neither of these is right. Well, overwork or underwork. Somehow get out of it. No, the anxiety-producing fear needs to be answered with this. You, O king, the king of kings. You, O king, the king of kings. In all of your dazzling splendor, in everything that you think that you've done so well out and all the expectations. You've risen to this height. I mean, the Babylonian Empire was the world power. It is one of the greatest empires of all time. When you get there, when you get, when you get to the top of your game, you're the king, the king of kings. You are incredible. When you get to the top of your game, when you get to the place where you say, I'm there, I've made it, or I I want to make it, I'm going to, but what if I don't make it? When you get to that place, do you know what the scriptures want to remind you of? You, O king, the king of kings, listen to this, listen to it. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power. Stop right there. Everything that you think that you have, everything that you think that you gained, all of your successes, all of the stuff that you have, everything that you think that you have to keep working for, everything that I think that I, I have to keep doing this because my house is going to leak and that I've got to say no to the kids right now because i got to keep... Everything that, that Matt, you think that you did, my name's Matt, by the way, I'm not talking to you if your name is Matt, but maybe I am at the same time, but you, like, like everything that you think that you worked for, everything that you built, this incredible house or this incredible life or this, this reputation, everything that you have, it came from God. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. He gave you your sphere of of rule. What you're ruling over, God has given you. You may be a world power, but God has caused you to be that world power. The power and the might and the glory. Everything that you have. 
does not come from your pedigree, does not come from your, your incredible abilities per se, but it comes from God who has given you the abilities and the power and the glory. Your looks, your money, your anything. Why should I help people? You know, I mean, what makes me different than them? I worked hard. I, I, I worked hard, and, and, and God gave me this money, and, and so what, what, why, should I, why should I give some of that away? Why should I help someone? Because God gave you that. You didn't work for it. Let's just, let's just stop right there for a second. A conservative value, and I, I push back on conservative value, values a lot. So I'm not here to necessarily rip on conservatives or liberals, but, but I do want to push back on this, that we should be the first people that are willing to give up what we think that we have because God is the one who gave it to us. You, it's not that you worked hard. It's not that, oh, I just put my nose to the grindstone and I just did it. No, God gave you the personality and the, the traits and the abilities. God made me as somebody who wants to work constantly. God, God and I use it sinfully sometimes, but God made me that way. God, I don't know what's driving me. I don't know. I just pick up a hammer and I, you know, I just, I can't stop doing it, Right? You know, I, I, I'm like, I just want to work on something. I just like, like you know, if, if it's not at church, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm getting a little restless. I got to work out. God gave me that personality. God gave me that ability. He gave me the rule and the reign and the ability to do that. And he gave that to me in order that I can help others. In order that I can be a blessing to those. God, God has specifically gifted me in that way so that I can be that for other people. Nebuchadnezzar's problem is that he's saying, how am I going to hold on to this? And guess what? This is, the, this is what I'm talking about. This is why I started the sermon the way that I did. What's our issue? I got it. I got it. I got it. I can't. I can't. I can't. And what happens is this, is that we never recognize what God is doing in his kingdom. We never recognize it. And we just keep saying, I've, I've got to keep this stuff up. Let those people help themselves. Let those, let those people do, do what they need to do to get ahead. I did what I needed to do. And into whose hand, verse 38, he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior, inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron uh, breaks to pieces uh, and shatters all things, and like, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. 
And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Stop right there for a second. He says, O king, you are this statue. And you represent this head of gold. And you represent the kingdoms of this world that, and these kingdoms that are coming after you. And th- this, is, this is who you are. But there is a small problem. And that is that your kingdom and all the kingdoms that follow you are all at a serious loss because they're all built on feet of clay. They're all built on a very brittle foundation. They're all built with a serious, serious um, dysfunction. Too infrequently do we actually see what those feet of clay are. Too infrequently do we actually know and understand what that looks like in our lives. And many times when, when our lives fall apart and the things take place that we say, I, I, I have no explanation for this. Like everything is, is, is just it's falling apart or something's beginning to break down. We're not seeing the deficiency too frequently. All we do is we blame God and say, God, how could you allow this to take place? How could you allow this to take place? And how could you... Or it, it's, it's perhaps we go on and we continue to, to like God and say, I'm still a Jesus follower or something like that. But it's just... it's. I, I've got to fix this. I've got to make this happen. But there's a fundamental problem with their lives, and that is that they are built on a faulty foundation. They're built on this foundation that says that I can make this happen. I can make this work. I can cause things to be better. I can fix this. It's very much, very much my lifestyle, very much who I am. It's it's it's. it's it's not, I mean, when things get bad, I do, I do pray. I do pray throughout the day. I'm, I'm, I'm praying. But I've found that there are some times when I, I have just been working myself to death without actually be, being dependent on, on God. And so instead of trying to really deal with the foundational element that really is the issue, I start trying to fix the window dressing. I start re- rearranging the chairs, the deck chairs on the Titanic, as they say. I start trying to, you know, I'm just going to pour a better foundation under that sucker. Let's just do it. Put some more steel in there. That's what I did in my house. You know, I mean, just, I'm just, I'm going to fix that sucker, right? We all think that we're going to do it. And this is what his issue was. He says, I think I was in verse 42. 
And as the toes of feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces uh, broke broke uh, that it broke in pieces the iron the bronze the clay the silver and the gold a great god has made this known to the king what shall be after this at, at what shall be after this? The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. And what do we see? What do we see? King Nebuchadnezzar believes that his, his power is unsurpassed, and he's right. He, he sees himself in this massive image. And he begins to have this dream. Some of us have these dreams where it's like it's all coming crashing down. It's producing anxiety. It's constantly producing this anxiety. And in this dream, what happens is this stone out of nowhere comes and smashes it to bits. What if it all falls apart? What if, what if everything goes away? What God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, <laughs> you know, you know, King, you're powerful, but you aren't forever. And people get really hung up on which, which kingdoms these are, but they probably are the Medo-Persian Empire, and then uh, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. I'm sorry, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And what, what, what's God saying to him? He's saying... There's going to be another one, and there's going to be another one, and there's going to be another one, and there's going to be another one. And they're going to successively become less valuable. It's going to go from gold to silver to bronze to iron. And they're all going to be destroyed by something that is seemingly insignificant. Because you and I, we look at the statue and we go, dude, that's an amazing statue. We, we look at the, mirror, the American dream, we say, that's an, that's an amazing statue to attain after. That's, that's the life that I want to live. That's what I want to be a part of. Or that's where I am. I have gotten myself there. That is where I'm at. But what's God saying to Nebuchadnezzar? He's saying, that, like, you could achieve all of that, and it's just going to be picked up by someone else. And then it's just going to be picked up by someone else. And then it's just going to be picked up by someone else. And it's, it's going to go from this really great value because somehow perhaps it means the gold means, the value of the gold means it is a semi-moral regime, even though they're very, they are very, very uh, corrupt in many ways as well. But as it goes into the Roman Empire, the brutality just continues to increase. And it makes us see that the world is not getting better, but it's getting worse and what's, what's taking place is that this, this whole thing is, is happening, and, and what's happening is that God has orchestrated what's going to take place. It's just one kingdom 
after another, and God has ordained that they would come and that they would go. And Nebuchadnezzar's greatest fear is that the whole thing would be destroyed. That the whole thing would be destroyed. Destroyed by what? Something as seemingly insignificant as a rock or a stone. Something as seemingly insignificant as something that like, okay, so someone chiseled this thing out. And, and it's going to destroy all of my massive work. It's going to destroy everything that I have. The, the, the lack of importance of this stone. But this stone is coming and it is directed at Nebuchadnezzar. It is directed at his life's work and the life's work of everyone else. And God is showing him a clue. And what's the clue? He's saying, your, your work, your legacy, all of the riches that you have is not the greatest. The greatest thing that ever could be is this kingdom. It says in verse 40, 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. See, here's the problem. We put ourselves in Daniel's shoes. We say, I'm going to go speak truth to power. I'm going to be that guy who's going to be, who's going to be this, who's going to be that, who's going to be the other thing. There's only one person that's done that, and that's Jesus. See, Nebuchadnezzar represents us. Nebuchadnezzar represents the vast majority of Americans in this room. See, we're always thinking that I can just build this thing. I can just make my life better, and everything will go better for me. I can just fix this. I can, make, I can make this better. But the problem is, is that we have feet of clay. We have a foundational issue that you and I can't fix. So what is, what is the fix? What is it? It's Jesus. It says in Matthew 21, verse 42... 44, it says, Jesus said to them, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And what's the cornerstone? It's the foundational element of a building in their day. It is the foundational element. Has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. You hear that? This was the Lord's doing, a stone not cut out by human hands. This is not something that man can do or fulfill. It is a stone that the Lord has provided. This is the Lord's doing, 
and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The greatest reality in our lives is, what am I building? What kind of statue am I building of myself? What's, that's what our uh, American Christianity, our American world is saying. Make something of yourself. And do you know this? It is producing the anxiety that's tearing you apart. It is producing the life that is, that is coming apart at the seams. It is producing mass murder. It is producing fatherless children. It is producing heartache and pain and all of these things. And it is because we're creating an, uh, a statue in our own image and we're thinking that somehow it's great, but it has feet of clay. And Jesus says this, I dash all of those to pieces so that you can see that my kingdom is going to fill the whole earth. My kingdom is going to be the everlasting kingdom, not yours. My kingdom is the one that will rule over everything. Anything that you have came from me. It says in Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. You see what that says? When you have the chief cornerstone in your life, when you make Jesus the foundational element of your life, what happens? You're not going to be in haste. There's going to be less anxiety because of this. You are not sovereign. God is. God is the one who gives. It says in 1 Peter 2, verse 6 through 8, for it stands in Scripture. 1 Peter 2, verse 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying a uh, in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The, the shame that would come from the failure of my life, whoever believes in the chief cornerstone will not be put to shame. Do you see Jesus as the one who you must believe in? So the honor is for you who believe, but it's also for those who do not, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here's the question. How do you obey the word? How do you walk with Jesus as your foundation? How do you walk? First, it comes with this, that you have to identify where your greatest fears and your greatest anxieties are resting. Say, I don't have any fears. I don't have any anxieties. Guess what? When the stone not hewn by human hands comes and shatters your picture, when God allows your life to be shattered, you will see. You will see. 
Have you walked past one of those disasters in your life and said, you know, I, I, just, I just need to pick myself up? Or have you stopped and recognized, you know what? This whole thing has come from the reality that I believe that I can fix this. How do you make Jesus the center? How do you make him the cornerstone and the foundation? It comes in an understanding. All that I have came from God. All that I have is his. Everything that I've made in, in, in these circumstances is from God. And my kingdom will not last forever. His kingdom is eternal. And what does that do? What does that do? When you believe that, when you pray that, over and over and over again, it begins to change your outlook on life. And it can't just happen once. It has to happen continually. How do you obey the word? It's continually recognizing the kingdom that will be forever. It's continually recognizing that Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. It is not here in fullness yet. But it will be here in fullness. And the kingdom that I work for is his kingdom today and in the future. Jesus shows us how we do this perfectly through perfect obedience on the cross. So let me just say this. Let's say that you're in this place where you don't understand, like, what do I need to do in order to take steps of growth as a Christian? Let's take a look at where you sacrifice because Jesus shows us that one of the key ingredients of someone who is about his kingdom is sacrifice. Let's take a look at sacrifice. What are you sacrificing for the kingdom of God? What are you sacrificing? Are you sacrificing money? Are you sacrificing sex? Are you sacrificing power? It may be that you've got to say no to the guy that wants to marry you or the girl that wants to marry you because you're about that kingdom. It comes down to saying, Jesus' sacrifice for me shows me so well what it means to be a part of his kingdom. It, Jesus' sacrifice is exemplified to me, and it shows me that I am to respond. I am to obey the word in this way. Are you obedient in regards to sacrifice. It's, the project is going to take longer, Matt, because I sacrifice to do the things that God has called me to. God's kingdom is forever. My house is not. God's kingdom is forever. Your job is not. God's kingdom is forever. Sex is not. 
God's kingdom is forever. Insert in the blank what that looks like. So how are you sacrificing? And, th- and, this, is, and this is what it comes down to, guys. Is that what does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ in Salem, Oregon, in 2017? What does it look like? It looks like we have to be people of sacrifice, not because it gets us to God, not because it gets us to Jesus, not because it saves us, but because it shows that we are about his kingdom. It shows that we are saying yes to the kingdom of God, and we're saying no to the kingdom of ourselves. It shows that my, all of my identity is not rooted in this golden image and in the rule and the power and all the things that I have. It shows that I am after him. And what this means then is that regardless of whether we have children or not, or whether we have um, different financial constraints, or whether we have whatever, that stuff is going to flow out of us that is an offering to God that says, I'm giving up. I'm giving up what I have for who you are. How are we sacrificing as a church? I want our community groups this week to stop and ask this question. How do we live this out together? How are we going to sacrifice? I'm glad that our community groups have good community and they're growing. And I'm super pumped about the areas of mission. And I'm super pumped that, that people are getting connected in that, in that way. But how are we sacrificing together on the mission of Jesus Christ? I think we are doing that. How can we continue to do that? How can we continue to sacrifice for God? Jesus shows us what ultimate sacrifice is. How do we respond to that?